the weekly Hugh Demon. Full steam ahead. Episode 47. Man, I tell you, I'm really digging this fall weather. Temperatures in the upper 50s, 60s, sunny out. It's like it's too cold in the shade, but feels great in the sun. Just absolutely love this weather. The only weather I like more is this weather after the first frost. You know, that's that's the, the Indian summer. First frost comes in, yeah, the flowers are dead, but so are the mosquitoes, so are the flies. Both of which have been horrible this year. I mean, my office, my law office downtown for the first time in 28 years has flies in the office. I think it's because we had to replace our back door and I think the door is off for you know, a couple hours while the, the construction crew put a new door on and I think just a bunch of flies must have come in because it's just been awful since we did that. It's unbelievable trying to concentrate on stuff and then have a fly come right in your face. That and trying to sleep and a fly comes right in your face. <laughs> it's just the worst. Hopefully that first frost comes and kills them, although I'm not sure what we do with the, the flies in the office. Although, I've noticed in the past that when you have mosquitoes or anything in your house, they seem to die out when there's a frost outside. I don't know why that would be if they're in the house. The house didn't freeze, but it seems to work. So, looking forward to that first frost. So, I'm reading from G.K. Chesterton. And as you know, I'm a, I'm a big Chesterton fan. And just, you know, when I read something from Chesterton... It's almost like I'm reading gospel, uh, convoluted gospel, <laughs> but gospel nonetheless. The, the guy had like a direct intuition of truth. It just seemed like to flow through his pen. A very difficult writer to read, but, uh, it's a very, very engrossing writer. When you, when you get into him, you kind of get in that flow. Uh, you remember what flow is? We talked about before. Flow is that, is like effortless concentration because when you're trying to concentrate, you're trying to do two things. One, you're trying to focus on what you're trying to focus on, <laughs> like like the page you're reading. But then you're also trying to block out external distractions. When you're in the flow, the external distractions are automatically filtered out. So your mind's not doing two things at the same time, not trying to filter out and focus. It's just focusing, and that means you're in the flow. And I've pointed this out a couple times in this podcast because... If you like to concentrate, practice getting into the flow. It is a habit that can be cultivated. I've always been pretty good at it. Um, I don't know why, but but when I when I finally understood a few years ago what the flow is, I started consciously developing it, and I find I can get in the flow pretty quickly. I don't know if it's thirty seconds, ninety seconds, however long it takes, but I'm able almost like to lapse into the flow quickly because I just kind of practice it for a while, and it seemed to come naturally to me. So I'd, I'd urge you to cultivate that. But anyway, Chesterton just seems to be a writer because he's kind of difficult, entertaining, but difficult. It's almost like you, you kind of get in the flow quicker. It's like you, the amusing stuff grabs your attention and makes you want to be there. And it's almost like it makes the outside world, the, the external distractions fall off quicker. I, I can't really explain it. It just seems to be the case with certain writers and Chesterton seems to have it in spades. Anyway, so when I read Chesterton, yeah, I, I get engrossed in what he's saying, and I and I think the man, you know, basically wrote truth almost all the time. <laughs> I say almost because he he ascribed to a, an economic doctrine called distributism, and I can't get into it here. 
And it's it's a lovely, beautiful theory. And if I think something's beautiful, I, I think that means it's probably good. And if it's good, it means it's probably true. Those are the three transcendental truths, you know, beauty, goodness, and truth. And distributism is a beautiful theory. And so my gut reaction is to think it's good and, and true. But I've never been able to see how it works without governmental coercion. And that I find very, very disagreeable. The concept, basically, broad distribution of property, in particular real estate, where people can develop their own crops and feed themselves, you know, have their own milking cow or what have you. Uh, it's a, it's a beautiful little idea. I just, again, I can't see how it can work. And in, in this world, with huge central governments, it's downright freaking scary <laughs> if you implement that policy, that, that tyrannical type fascist mechanism that has to be employed, has to be employed by the state to pull it off just scares the hell out of me. So, uh, Cheston and I kind of part ways there when it comes to distributism, but everything else the guy wrote, he's the man and, his name was a household name back in, you know, 1905, 1920, 1930. People like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, who were his intellectual enemies, they loved him, and they were in awe of his abilities. <laughs> they said the guy is just so freaking brilliant. They didn't agree with anything he said. You know, Cheston was a Christian first and foremost, and later in life converted to Catholicism. Uh, but, you know, even people like... George Bernard Shaw, who was a Fabian socialist and a non-believer to say the least, H.G. Well, an atheist, they just like, yeah, you know, GKC, he's the man. We, we can't understand how he's Catholic, but he is the man. And then, of course, trust himself influenced a ton of people like the brilliant Hugh Kenner, you know, who is a, a literary expert and a, also a mathematician of sorts. He wrote some, I can't get to Hugh Kenner now, but, he, but the man was absolutely freaking brilliant. And he was a huge G.K. Chesterton fan. Marsha McLuhan, C.S. Lewis, the list goes on and on. People who Chesterton influenced. So whenever I read Chesterton, I think I'm you know, kind of reading gospel here. So anyway, I read this, this piece last week. I just want to read it to you. He's talking about the test of true religion. He goes, the test of true religion is, quote, it is always trying to make men feel truths as facts, unquote. He goes on and says, he says, true religion tries to make abstract things as plain and solid as concrete things. It tries to make men not merely admit the truth, but see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. I love that quote. Let's juxtapose that against some of the things I talk about in this podcast. So I talk about uh, mysticism. I talk about the existential gap. I talk about Zen and just being, just looking. Last week I mentioned Meister Eckhart and the ground, you know, the ground of existence. Very like abstract, the things that go beyond rationality. I praise Taoism. The things I talk about here, you say, are, are very naked, very blunt or, or bare. You could come back and say, Chesky, what, what the frick? What's all that got to do with Catholicism? You're Catholic, but yet you praise and seem enamored with Zen practitioners, with Taoism. For crying out loud, the last two weeks you talked about LSD and how those can be mystical experiences. <laughs> Even though you're not a mystic, you're not a Zen Buddhist, and you've never seen, much less taken LSD. You could be saying, Shusky, what does Catholicism have to do with this naked religion, Zen or whatever? Yet the rosary, the miraculous medals, votive candles, incense, saint feast days, a scapular. What's all that crap got to do with 
the existential gap and Taoism and just looking, being between subject and object. What, what the frick, Shasky? And the answer is, well, it's that G.K. Chesterton quote. Catholicism is a true religion. It tries to make truth tangible. Let's go back and see what Chesterton said. It's trying to make abstract things as, as plain and solid as concrete things. It tries to make men not merely admit the truth, but see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. That's what all those religious things that people don't get, those superstitious things, which is a really stupid thing to say, by the way, and I can discuss it some other time, all those those um, amenities of Catholicism. That's what it's all about. Yes, it starts with the ground, a prophet, or a mystic, or Jesus Christ himself. It starts with those things and builds on it. You know, so you have, you know, there's 2,000 years of, of accumulation of stuff. <laughs> and I would say that's, that's like, it's like a mountain. It emerges naturally from the truths, these existential truths. All the stuff of Catholicism builds upon it and it all ties together. It's like a mountain rising off, you know, rising out of the earth. And of course the critics would say, no, it's like the, you know, the great big junk heap that triggered the great garbage avalanche of 2,505. <laughs> In idiocracy. <laughs> That's what that stuff is, and it's going to crush a church someday, but evidently it hasn't. And neither Sam not can resolve whether it's a mountain or a garbage heap. <laughs> That's going to depend on your perspective, and I respect that. But for current purposes, that's how you know you square this podcast. The things this podcast talks about, I would say, are kind of more primordial. And they don't disprove or discredit or contradict Catholicism at all. Catholicism makes these primordial truths tangible, touchable, seeable, smellable. That's what Catholicism does. Let's do some lighting segments. If you haven't checked it out, check out a podcast called Pints with Aquinas. It's with a guy named Matt Frad. I think it's F-R-A-D-D. And to be honest, I'm not a big fan. He's, he's kind of goofy. He uh, plays a lot, but he knows the stuff, and it's substantively very, very good. And, and again, not not exactly my cup of tea, although I, I definitely enjoy it. So I just made just a little bit of too too much goofiness for my taste. But he is apparently coming out with a series on Flannery O'Connor, and it's going to be featured for people who support him through Patreon. And a Flannery O'Connor expert is going to be breaking down the work of Flannery O'Connor. I'd definitely recommend if you can get get on that by supporting Matt Fry with a buck an episode, one dollar an episode, if that'll get you access to that Flannery O'Connor series, I'd definitely recommend it. The problem I don't like is I guess it's going to be on video, and it's like, eh, I just, I just don't like sitting on a computer screen looking at videos. But Flannery O'Connor, I've talked about it before, but she is, she's just brilliant. I've read, I think I've read everything she's written. I'm not positive about that. But it's not real hard. She only wrote two novels and a bunch of short stories. She died relatively young. I think she was 38, 39 years old. And she's kind of like, you know, I talk about Chesterton. It's like she had a direct intuition of truth, and she used that intuition in her fiction. And the fiction is just fascinating, especially when you know what she's doing in her fiction. And if you want to understand that, Check out a book of hers that I never see, not, not never, I, I rarely see reference. It's called Mystery and Manners. It's basically a collection of essays, or I think they're lectures that she gave and put in a, in a, in a print. 
but check out Mystery and Manners, especially if you're interested in writing short stories or you're interested in writing novels. There is just a ton of gold. I, I pulled my copy off my shelf, getting ready for this podcast, and flipped through it. And I was like, my gosh, I think I have over half of it underlined or marked up with a pen. <laughs> partner of mine, his, I think his, his brother-in-law, was on vacation with a lesbian or <laughs> some such thing. I don't, I don't know exactly what was going on here. Uh, nothing sexual. I think maybe it was a business trip, whatever. And she was telling about a thing called the fitness app or something like that. And it has a real just generic name. But what it is, it is a uh, like a gay businessman hookup app. So when like men, and I use that word loosely, <laughs> men are on a business trip, they want to hook up with a gay guy. They go on the fitness app and find someone. <laughs> it reminds me of the heyday of practical jokes on the phone you know, before there's caller ID and all that and just call on a cell phone they can see exactly who it is I'd uh, jerk my brother-in-law around once in a while and I <laughs> I had him going <laughs> for like 15 minutes I had this this voice I was like hey uh, I'm calling from the link and I want to get together for uh, dinner and something and <laughs> <laughs> he said, what you, he's like, what are you talking about? And I, and I explained to him, I said, well, you know, this is a, uh, it's the link. It's a homosexual businessman's love network. And uh, I'm in town for the night on business, and I was hoping we'd get together for a dinner and uh, something. <laughs> my brother-in-law just freaking out. because like, I'm on some website with my name listed. And he kept saying, no, you got the wrong guy. And then I would, and I would say, well, it says here that, you know, this is your name, and this is where he went to high school and this is where he went to college this is what you do now he's like yeah that, that's me but I'm not I'm not on this homosexual businessman network and that went off right <laughs> 10 minutes he finally figured out it was me and and here this now you got this fitness app it's like you know stuff I was making up is simply <laughs> something simply outrageous in the 1990s is now come full circle there's, there's an app for it it's unbelievable hey I haven't been doing the blog recently. My apologies. Uh, my mom's death. Uh, we're buying a new house. This life is, you know, kind of take me, take me in a headlock, and I just have a hard time getting things done. So certain things had to go by the wayside. I, I do hope to get that up and running again. Thanks to all of you who have been sending me links with potential stories to post and essays. I really appreciate it. In the econ talk with Michael Polon, I'm talking about it in the next segment. He's talking about LSD trips, and he said, you know, one of the things you see in these LSD trips is you, you experience immense gratitude and thankfulness. And I just found that just, I guess, really, really gratifying. You know, because I mentioned a couple episodes ago that you could probably do like a mini LSD trip or a pale imitation of it by just giving thanks constantly. And that would kind of give you the same type of ego dissolving going on in the LSD. And I just found it fascinating or interesting that people on LSD trips when they're doing these guided experiences on LSD one thing they experience are just is just a sense of gratitude and thankfulness just washes over them and it's really really intense he said when you come out of these guided LSD experiences he goes that sense of gratitude and thankfulness stays with you if you are an American sports fan you are in the midst of the greatest time of year the NHL kicked off you got college football in full swing. You got the MLB playoffs going on. It gets really, really intense that last like eight days or nine days of October. 
when the NBA tips off. I mean, you just got so much to watch when it comes to American sports. Big four are all going at the same time. You need like, you know, 10 TVs to take it all in. I remember, gosh, like 20 years ago, I had like two or three TVs set up one Saturday. And I sat back with like a 12-pack of beer and I just, I just watched TV for like, you know, six hours straight. Which is something I typically can't do, but here I had the Red Wings on. Now, maybe the Pistons, I can't remember what all, but there is just all sorts of sports. I'm flicking back and forth. It's, it's just a smorgasbord. Unfortunately, this is also the most gorgeous time of year. Right? The last time, <laughs> the last point of the year I want to be stuck inside watching TV. It's like now I want to be outside enjoying this amazing weather. So you got an amazing tension in your everyday life at this time of year if you're a sports fan, but you also like being outside. Website recommendation. Blank.org. You know, I have, I have to get stuff on the internet a lot, either in connection with my studies at home, with, with Zen or whatever. I want to look something up on the internet, or at the office. I need to I need to log on to my you know my research software, and the homepage that comes up distracts me. You know, so if my homepage is you know the Detroit Free Press, or whatever, it's like oh, there's an article I, I find interesting. Well, I made Blank.org my homepage, and it has nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing and then you go up in the search bar and you type in your search or you, go, you access your bookmarks but I did that a couple weeks ago and it's been amazing when I log into my website it's just a blank page and I don't find myself checking out anything it's, it's a real simple thing but it's been an enormous help to me in keeping me from getting distracted or pulled off, pulled off tasks so I'd strongly recommend if you, if you have that problem maybe you don't but if you like me and one reason you don't like getting on the internet is because you find yourself going down that rabbit hole real fast. Go to blank.org. Make that make that the page that comes up first. Did you see that idiot uh, Alexandria Cortez? She wants to bail out the medallion drivers in New York City, saying that they had to pay so much for their medallion tabs that they they can't make a living. And that is just frustrating. I'm guessing it has something to do with Uber eating into their profits. I don't I don't really know. But she says it's just outrageous how much they had to pay for these. And we need to bail them out. And I'm just like, I, I can't really speak to that. Um, although I hate bailouts in all forms, whether it's for the rich people on Wall Street or banks or GM or poor people who can't find a job and they get welfare benefits. Let's face it, that that's a bailout of sorts as well. I hate all bailouts. They're, they're insidious, and it can go on for days about just the harm it does to, to, the, to, mor- to the moral fabric of a country. But that's not the point here. The point is, why the frick are there medallions required to drive a taxi in New York to begin with, you idiots? This is a classic example of the government getting involved in something, and they're artificially creating a shortage of taxi drivers. And then they made a huge market mess for those same taxi drivers. So the medallion program that was supposed to help protect and probably generate tax revenue or revenue for the city at the same time, the people are supposed to protect, now it's killing. It's just unbelievable. And the government put that in place, and now the government wants to bail out the problem they created in the first place. It's just like, over and over and over again, you see why I am a libertarian, or quite frankly, in today's world, probably closer to an anarchist. Hey, you want to make a ton of money? It's going to be real simple. Come up with a way to work your abs while you're sleeping. <laughs> so you got the you got the seven minute abs or the six minute abs, whatever it is. Well, come up with ab exercises to do when you're sleeping. How how amazing would that be? 
So those people are like, man, my abs are killing me. I slept 18 hours last night. You know, <laughs> so I'm at a seminar last week, and one of the sessions was just totally irrelevant to my practice, but I got to sit through it because I'm licensed in Indiana. And Indiana requires us to actually physically attend half our seminars. They have a continuing legal education requirement in Indiana. And they don't care if you learn anything at all. Just as long as you have your rump in a seat at a physical seminar, then you get to keep your license, which is just so absurd it's not even funny. I mean, the obvious answer is lawyers ought to be able to show a minimum level of competency as they go on. So like maybe every five, ten years, you should probably take a basic test, at least in the areas you practice in, to show you have that competency. But making me sit in a seminar is ridiculous. Moreover, saying it can't be a video seminar... They said you're going to do half of the credits by video. The rest of it, you actually have to pick up and drive to a physical location and take it. Absolutely absurd. But I have to do it. I get a fair amount of work in Indiana, so I drive to Grand Rapids, Michigan last week, and I'm taking my business law institute, and it's there's a section that is totally irrelevant to my practice, so I, I go on my Kindle Fire start pulling up books and looking at them. And somehow I, can't, I had this book, uh, Thomas Hoover, the Zen Experience. I no idea where it came from. My my sons said they they didn't download it. I must I must have bought it on a whim years ago. Anyway, so I downloaded it, started reading it. it. It looks great. So if you're interested in Zen, but you don't want to necessarily jump into DT Suzuki or some of the essays of Thomas Merton, which is primarily where I get my Zen stuff from, or John Wu. That's that's another one of my favorite sources. If you don't want to go there and you want something more modern, uh, this book I think was written in oh gosh 2000. I'm not sure. But I've, I've read the first part of it, and it's really, really good. So I definitely recommend that. Thomas Hoover, The Zen Experience. So a listener of this podcast sends me an episode of Econ Talk. It's an interview with Michael Pollan, who published a book last year called How to Change Your Mind. It's all about the, the frontiers of LSD and magic mushrooms and things like that. It's, it's, it's an outstanding podcast. And yes, I'm going to talk a little bit more about LSD, but it's, it's kind of a launching point for a broader point. And by the way, never ever hesitate to send me episodes or anything you think I might enjoy. And so here, you know, I've, I've been kind of enamored with LSD and this whole concept of dissolving the ego. And if you listen to the podcast, you know, I, I also really enjoy Econ Talk. And here there is an episode out there that I did not know existed. That's, you know, it's Econ Talk talking about LSD. And the mystical experience and all that. And this read, this listener probably could have figured, oh, Chesky probably knows about that. Well, I didn't. And there's so much stuff out there to listen to. You know, I'm only scratching the surface every week. So if you ever have any inkling I might be interested in a link or a podcast, shoot it over to me at ericchesky at gmail.com. If I've already heard it, so be it. Sure as heck doesn't hurt to send me the link, so. Anyway, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play for you this, this blurb. It's an outstanding podcast episode. I definitely encourage you to listen to it. It's in 2018. Just go into like, uh, the, the podcast software you use and search Econ Talk and pull on. P-O-L-L-A-N. You pull it up. But I'm gonna play you this blurb I found particularly fascinating. And I had to transpose it from my iPhone. So the sound quality is not great, but it's, it's 100% audible. You have no problem understanding what he says. It takes about one minute. 
Carlo Rovelli, who's an Italian physicist, gave an interview recently. Uh, he wrote seven brief lessons on physics, and he's a you know prominent Italian physicist. He said he had had an LSD experience uh, when he was 15 or 17 that actually had opened up physics to him, and that he had an experience of time where uh, it was no longer past, present, and future, but it was kind of more like space, and you could go in any direction, and the present was eternal. And um, and after the experience was over, he said, well, how do I know that that experience is false, and my everyday experience of time as, you know, having an arrow and going in one direction and linear is right? And, in fact, physics tells us it's not right, that there is a beyond, that there is a whole other structure to reality that's very different than the one we perceive. And so he, he came out of the experience with a, with a healthy appreciation of a, um, of a beyond, a scientific beyond. Um, so it's, you know, this takes us into very interesting areas and very exciting. That, that's a great quote. The precise part I want to focus on, though, is his statement, Quote, a whole other structure to reality that's very different than the one we perceive, unquote. And he's talking about modern physics, and that substantiates other things I've heard about modern physics, that, you know, when you look at a desk, it's really just, it's, it's really in motion. If you look at the molecules inside, they're all moving around, even though the desk looks very, very solid. It's not solid. When you, when you start examining it and looking into the physics behind it, it's like, no, these molecules or whatever are all moving around. And again, I am, as <laughs> I admitted before, when it comes to the STEMs, science, technology, engineering, math, I am pretty freaking ignorant. I, I, I know a fair amount about the things I talk about on this podcast, but when it comes to the STEM, I'm pretty ignorant. But I can listen to people who know about physics and what they say, and they say things like, yeah, that desk ain't solid. Things aren't as they appear to be. The reason I find this particularly interesting is, that's the Eucharist. As Catholics, when we go up to communion, take the bread and wine, we believe that the bread no longer exists, substantively no longer exists. It's been transformed, morphed into the body and blood of Christ. And the same with the wine. The wine is no longer there. It has the accidents, the appearance of wine. But substantively, the wine is no longer there. Transubstantiation, the substance has been transcended. The substance has been replaced with the body and blood of Christ. And the Eucharist is, you know, the sum and summit of the Catholic life. That's why it's so shocking that poll came out that something like two-thirds of Catholics don't believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And it's like, that is the sin qua non, without, <laughs> that thing without which you're not Catholic. I mean, it's just, to go to Mass every week or even once every freaking 50 years, if you don't believe that, don't go. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just mind-blowing that you got quote-unquote Catholics out there who don't believe that. That's not remotely <laughs> it's not remotely negotiable when it comes to certain things you can believe in Catholicism. But anyway, getting off on a tangent there, sorry. I like that quote about physics and, you know, LSD making things appear other than they are, opening up vistas of reality that we don't perceive. I'm reminded that Benedict Rochelle was fond of quoting Albert Einstein or referring, rather, to Albert Einstein's life. I guess later in life, Albert Einstein loved to seek out Catholic priests, uh, or even better, Catholic theologians, and he was really, really curious about the Eucharist. He was just fascinated because he says what the Catholic Church teaches about the Eucharist 
is very similar to what he thinks physics will point out about reality ultimately. And he, according to Benedict Rochelle, he is fascinated by that connection. And so when I, and when I hear things like this, I'm just like, yeah, the Eucharist is substantiated, so to speak, by modern science, modern physics. And I've long been a proponent to the idea that the more and more we learn from science, the more and more Catholicism will be corroborated and vindicated. I understand that cuts against the grain <laughs> of, of all modern thought, which is one reason why I'm kind of getting into the whole postmodernism. You know, the whole idea of modern thought is science just proves religion, especially Catholicism and all its superstitions. And as we get further and further along modernism and science and physics, which is physics starts going like post-science in certain ways, and you have post-modernism, you start going past this, that two, three, four hundred years of modernity, and you start coming back to more primordial truths. And Catholicism increasingly gets vindicated. And that quote about physics that I just played for you a couple minutes ago, that, I can say, vindicates the Eucharist. Now, I hope some of you are thinking, gee, so freaking Pete Shusky, can't you see confirmation bias in your own thinking? <laughs> you, know, you hear some stray quote in the context of LSD on Econ Talk, and you're off and running saying, this proves the Eucharist is true. That's just, that's just freaking confirmation bias, Shusky. That's psychology 101, and you're totally oblivious to it. All right. Well, it's not true. <laughs> Yes, the risk of confirmation bias in such a thing is humongous. But that's not what's happening here. It happens in other areas, I suppose. Because <laughs> confirmation bias is hard to see. But that's not what I'm saying here. Because I'm not saying physics, as evidenced in that quote from Polon in that Econ Talk episode, proves the Eucharist is true. And that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is it proves that ultimate reality is not inconsistent with the Eucharist. doesn't prove what Catholics believe about the Eucharist is true. It just shows that what science has been saying for hundreds of years about the Eucharist not being true is false. That's what I'm saying. Again, break that down. It's not that the Eucharist is true. It's just that the science that says it can't be true is false. So there could be 10 other reasons out there why the Eucharist is not true. And let's Let's bring them on. Let's talk about them one, <laughs> one at a time. Some are probably pretty cogent. And again, I'm totally down with that. I, let's let's talk about it. Let's hear it. But this blanket denial of things like the Eucharist that modern science would told us, you know, just can't be. It's just ridiculous. We observe it with our telescope. We can still see the bread molecules in there. Therefore, we know it does, it's, not, it's not true. It doesn't exist. Yeah, we know now through physics and maybe LSD experiences, as science kind of moves beyond itself, kind of discredits itself, we realize that the things we perceive, and that's what science does, empirical science sees, observes, perceives, things we perceive ain't all there is to know. And therefore, the very foundation of science that supposedly overthrew the superstitions of the Eucharist don't apply. Physics and LSD, they've kind of undercut science itself. They'll come back and show us that, yeah, <laughs> the Eucharist very well can be true. Doesn't mean it is true. That'd be confirmation bias. I'm just saying it proves that it can be true. All right, that's a wrap for this week. 
please follow us on Twitter. Check out the Facebook page. Go to the blog. Check out UdemonPodcast.com. There's all sorts of information over there that you might find interesting. As always, thanks for listening.